what a privilege it is to be here. I tell you, I love your pastor. He's a dear friend. He's going to freeze to death in, uh, in Alaska if he didn't wear a coat, but uh, he's a dear friend. Let me just tell you this about him. Number one, you've already come to realize and know that he is one of the greatest leaders we have across the nation. And number two, he's one of the greatest expositors of God's word there is. And so, man, you are blessed uh, to have him as your pastor. And uh, what a privilege it is to watch. And I know God took you down a long, windy road to get you here, but man, God is blessing. And uh, let me say a couple things uh, as you're turning. Let me invite you to Philippians chapter one. As you're turning there, I want to say a couple of, of uh, opportunities, take a moment of opportunities to say a couple of words of thanks. Number one, thanks for partnering with the SBTC. We're a network of 2,728 churches uh, combining together in Texas to reach Texas and change the world together. And so thank you for partnering with that. And then also, even more on a personal note, uh, my family is a part of a church plant called Legacy Hills in Salina that you are helping plant and partner with. And so many of you have already been there, and thank you. In fact, you allowed us this summer to have Bailey with us this summer. She was one of our uh, interns, and she's from here. Did a phenomenal job investing in those students, and uh, so grateful uh, for all that you are doing and, and have done in uh, Salina, Texas with us. If you found your way to Philippians chapter one, I wanna to speak to you today out of the overflow of my heart because the truth of the matter is, this is just kind of what, what I'm going through. And I've always found that the greatest way to communicate God's word is to communicate kind of what I'm going through. And so uh, I wanna to speak today on the blessing of afflictions. See, that sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, Nathan. How, do you, how, how are blessings, how, are, how can afflictions be blessings? Well, I'm going to show you in Scripture what Paul says about how being afflicted could be used for God in your life. You see, afflictions are an unwanted and uninvited guest in our life. Like no one wakes up in the morning and goes, man, I hope that my day is full of afflictions and trials and, and, and tests. No, listen. All of us want to live life without afflictions. However, a life without afflictions can be a life that misses out on some of God's greatest blessings because oftentimes God's greatest platform in our life for his glory are the afflictions in our life. And today there's some of you here, man, you've got a relationship that's going bad. Maybe it's a marriage that's going bad. Maybe it's health, uh, physical, mental. Maybe it's a job. I have no idea, but you're facing afflictions. That's the one common thing. We may not agree on football teams. We may not agree on food, kinds of food we like. But the one thing we have in common is that every person in this room has some kind of affliction, some kind of test, some kind of trial you're walking through. And I think today there are some of you that, man, God is just going to allow you to have breakthrough, but you got to be kind of like my son. So I have four kids. Uh, my oldest is in college. Uh, he's playing football for Sam Houston State. We dropped him off in June. Can I just tell you? Um, that's different. Um, we dropped him off. We cried like crazy. We didn't talk to each other for about two hours back on the ride home. And the next morning I woke up and said, it's pretty awesome, man. Only seven years now and they're all out. I mean, it really is pretty awesome. Uh, but we are adjusting. My second son is a sophomore in high school, fire engine, red hair, six foot, about 200 pounds. He, a uh, defensive lineman at Salina, also plays rugby, went to Ireland this summer playing rugby. He's a monster of a kid, incredible kid. 
My third son is cute and mischievous. He's got a personality. He walks in a room, he's going to win the room. I look for him probably to be some like politician or something. I mean, he just knows how to work people. And then my daughter is from Uganda. God allowed us to adopt her. Well, when they were younger, we lived close to Six Flags, and so we got season passes at Six Flags. I don't know how many of you have been to Six Flags, but there's a roller coaster at Six Flags. It's kind of the mecca of roller coasters. It's called the Titan. How many of you have ridden the Titan? Yeah? It's an awesome thing. Well, my oldest son would ride with me on anything, so we were constantly trying to get my youngest son, fire engine red hair, Carter, uh, to ride the roller coaster. But every time we would go, he would be just too short to ride the roller coaster. So finally, it was a December in the park. And we, uh, we went there, it was Christmas in the park at Six Flags, it was a, a nighttime, and so the park is lit up, and we get there, we go straight to the Titan, go straight to the measuring stick, and finally, for the first time, Carter is finally big enough, tall enough to ride the Titan. I was like, Carter, this is awesome, man, this is what we've been waiting on. I have been waiting on this moment. Carter, tonight, you finally get to ride the Titan. And he looked at me and said, Dad, I'm not riding the Titan. I was like, no, bro, you have to ride the Titan. Like, this is kind of what you've been living for, man. Like, this is what you've been doing. He said, Dad, I am not riding the Titan. I said, son, you don't understand. This is like a passageway from boyhood to manhood, son. I mean, he was only eight at the time, but I wanted to start him early. So I'm like, you got to realize this is, and he's really smart. He was like, Dad, under no circumstances am I riding the Titan. So I did what any good dad would do. I said, hey, buddy, I'll give you five bucks. He said, where's the line? So we get in line. We get him strapped in. We're going up. Have you ever noticed how slow a roller coaster creeps up? I don't know about you. When I get to heaven, if any roller coaster engineers even make it to heaven, I'm going to find one and ask why. But I believe now I know the answer. I believe it's so you can get your life right with God on the way up. (laughs) We were going up. Beautiful night. In Arlington, you could see the lights of, of, of Six Flags, the city of Arlington. You see where the Rangers play and where the Cowboys attempt to play. And um, I looked at my son and I said to him, hey, buddy, dad forgot to tell you one thing. He goes, what's that, dad? I said, there's only one way to ride a roller coaster. Anybody know what that is? Hands up. He said, I'm not doing that, dad. I was like, bro, you have to. And so um, we get it to the top, and right before we fall, I put my arm on his security bar. And he grabs on and squeezes the circulation out of my arm as we fall. After I caught my heart down in my stomach and pushed it back up and caught my breath, I looked over, and my little redhead boy had his eyes closed, his hand raised, screaming at the top of his lungs, yeah! But don't miss this. It wasn't until he knew that the arm, his his father, was there. It wasn't until he knew dad was in the car next to him. It wasn't until he knew dad was on the ride with him. It wasn't until he knew dad was there and was not going to let anything happen. Then and only then was he willing to let go and raise his hands and enjoy the ride he was on. For some of you, you've been so encompassed by tragedy, by trial, by affliction, that you have lost the ability to know and understand that God is on this ride of life with you. And that when you press into him, 
in the ups and down the roller coaster of life and you realize that the arm of the Father is about you, man, you can let go and hold your hands up and worship and enjoy the ride God has you on because he's in the ride with you. He's on the ride of life with you. Paul is, is writing this to the letter of uh, the letter of Philippi to the church of Philippi, and he is writing this from a prison cell in Rome. I was just in Rome a few months ago, and they took us to the place where they believe is the prison cell that Paul was in. And let me tell you something, before all the modern uh, digging and whatnot, it would have been a deep, dark, cold dungeon, lonely, isolated dungeon. But yet in the midst of this lonely and isolated, deep and dark dungeon, Paul writes one of the most encouraging letters that we have in all of the scriptures. And in this letter, Paul is going to open the windows of his heart and he is going to unveil what it means to walk forward in affliction and be blessed by affliction because God does things in your life through affliction. You see, affliction is the thing that's unwanted, uninvited. Paul shows us in Corinthians that he's acquainted with, he says he was hungry, beaten, starved, robbed, shipwrecked, and he goes on and on and he says at the very end, and on top of that, all of the anxiety I feel for the churches. So Paul is a man well acquainted with grief. He's well acquainted with affliction. So much so that later on in chapter 1, Paul says that we, are, we have been granted with affliction, entrusted with suffering for Christ. So in our life, as we look at afflictions, I want us to see three simple things that Paul is going to show us. But before we get there, here's what we have to understand. Every one of us has afflictions in our life. You do not graduate from affliction. In fact, Warren Wiersbe says, the school of suffering never graduates any students. So just ask God to teach you the lessons he wants you to learn. And before we dive in and understand what Paul's going to say, let's understand this premise this morning. Whatever happens in your life, listen to me, God in his sovereignty either allows it or causes it. That's the two options. He either causes it in your life to mold you and shape you into his image, or he allows it so that it drives you to a place of desperation and dependence. And so there will be pres the presence of affliction in your life and in my life. And in those afflictions, God is working. He's either allowing it or causing it for his purpose. And three things I want us to see out of the life of Paul very simply this morning. First is found in chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to what he says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So here Paul is writing from a prison cell in a deep, dark dungeon, isolated, lonely, cold, probably hungry, wondering when he's going to get out, but yet he finds the courage in the midst of this affliction to say to this church in Philippi, don't fret because what has happened to me, God is using and as he is using it, the gospel is actually advancing. You see, for us, oftentimes our walk with God is, is, is hindered when we go through trials or afflictions because we seem to lose touch with God. We feel like God has forgotten us, like he's forsaken us, which we know is not true because he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. 
But it, oftentimes in our trials, we get frustrated with God and we back away from God. And Paul is just the opposite. He's going, no, 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 no. I am in prison. I am tired. I am lonely. I am hungry. It is dark. I am isolated. But by God's grace, even in the midst of all of that, God is using my life and my affliction for his glory and the advancement of the gospel. Robert Murray McChaney says this. I want you to listen to this because this is so, such a great word picture. He said, your afflictions may only prove that you are more immediately under the Father's hand. There is no time that the patient is such an object tender interest to the surgeon as when he is bleeding beneath his knife. So you may be sure that if you are suffering from the hand of a reconciled God and his eye is all the more bent upon you. You see, friends, I don't know what you're going through. But here's what I know. God doesn't waste your pain or your affliction. Whatever you're walking through, God's with you in it. God is working in it. You may not see it. You may not like it. You may not know how he's doing it. But God is moving and God is working. A few years ago, this became really true in my life. And this is what I was saying. I want to be just raw and honest and vulnerable with you. January of 2015, I was an interim pastor in Austin, Texas. I was working at the SBTC, and I was driving down to Austin every weekend. And I got home one Sunday afternoon. It was playoff football time. <laughs> I said to my wife, I said, sweetheart, I just, I need, I just, if you'll give me 30 minutes just to kind of decompress my mind, let me watch a little football, I'll come help with the kids or the kitchen or whatever. So I go in my room, I sit down, I turn on the television. I'm just trying to let my mind relax a little bit, and I get a phone call. And it's my uncle. He says, hey, Nathan, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, I don't know how to tell you this. He said, but the paramedics are at your mom's house. And she didn't make it. You know how you hear something, but you don't hear it. So I said, you know, tell me, what did you just say? Tell me again. And he said, buddy, I don't know how to tell you this, but your mom went to sleep last night and never woke up. She was 59 years old. After I kind of gained my composure, I picked up the phone. I called all three of my sisters and told them that mom had gone to be with the Lord. And, and I packed a bag and immediately headed to Shreveport where I'm from. And I knew I needed to pastor my family. So I get there. I begin pastoring my family. I helped plan the service. And I thought to myself, if I'll just stay busy, man, if I'll just, if I'll just stay busy, like I can just go on, no big deal. Life happens, this happens, I'll just move on. And so I planned the service. I, I did my mom's funeral on Saturday. I got in the car, I drove to Austin, Texas. I preached on Sunday. I got back in the car, drove home, was in the office on Monday and thought, man, I got this. What I didn't know is how exhausted I was. I didn't know I'd been traveling every weekend for three years in a row speaking and I had no idea how physically exhausted I was. I had no idea how spiritually and, 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 and uh, just mentally exhausted I was. I had no idea how now emotionally exhausted I was. And in June of 2015, one day, just like that, the dam of my heart busted. And all the emotion, all the exhaustion came flowing out like a raging river. That day, I entered into the darkest season of my life. 
You see, before then, I would have been the kind of guy that would have said, well, man, listen, there's no way you can deal with discouragement or anxiety or fear or depression if you have the joy of Jesus in you. That just is what I thought. But let me tell you something. That day, I became acquainted with an affliction called anxiety and fear. Something happened after I just let the dam of my heart bust. Something, I just emptied myself, and all of a sudden... I begin to deal with severe anxiety and fear. And the crazy thing is if you would have said, Nathan, what's, what's, what are you anxious about? What, what's, what are you fearful? I'd have been like, nothing, man. My life is awesome. <laughs> but I had no control over it. And I didn't know what was going on. And it was scaring me and was bothering me. And I, I lost about 30 or 40 pounds in a, mere, a period of about three and a half, four weeks. And I would just, I couldn't sleep. I was pacing. And, and my wife, she would sit me in the chair about three or four o'clock in the morning. She'd just lay hands on me and just pray, dear God, would you do something? Give my husband peace. I don't know what's going on. She later told me and, and challenged me. She said, you know what I think happened is, man, just things have come easy to you. And I think you've come face to face with your own humanity that you can't do it all. You've got to surrender it to the Lord. Well, let me tell you something. Every night I would pace all night long. And so about 4 or 4.30, I'd go out on my back porch and I would take my iPhone flashlight and I would take God's word and I would open God's word and I'd say, oh God, would you rescue me from this? Would you get me out of this situation? Please God, rescue me. And the turning point came. When I stopped praying, God, would you rescue me? And I started praying, God, would you walk with me in it? I'll never forget the morning that God brought me to a verse. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, here's what it says. And after you suffered for a little while... So here in the midst of my affliction, in the midst of my anxiety, in the midst of the, the pain and the struggle... God brings me to a place and he, realize, he helps me realize, listen, after you suffer a little while, number one, stop there, understand this, whatever trial and affliction you're walking through, there is a time stamp on it. Listen to what he says, after you've suffered a little while. Say, Nathan, that's good to know. When is mine going to end? I have no idea. <laughs> Can I be really honest with you? I don't, I rarely like God's timetable anyways. I have no idea. But here's what I know. As you're suffering, as you're dealing with this affliction, God is working in you and God is working through you. And God is working on you. Here we see, this is what Paul says. What's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And here I was in the midst of my trial and God bring me to this place to realize my time stamp, my suffering has a time stamp. But he goes on in verse 10 to say, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, listen to this, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Not self-help, not books, not conferences. Those are all good things. But listen, he says, after you suffer a little while, after I'm done working on you, after you've suffered a little while, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I had two promises that morning with my flashlight. My suffering will end at some point. I will get through this. And when I do, God himself will be the one to confirm, strengthen, renew, and establish me. Paul is in prison, and he's helping us to realize, listen, afflictions have a real purpose in my life. He says, I want you to know what's happened to me 
It's actually served to advance the gospel. Number two, Paul says this, shows us this, afflictions. We can see the power of our afflictions when we have an eternal perspective. Now, what do we mean? Look what he says, verse 13. So that it has been become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. So Paul says, Paul says, not only I'm going to have this affliction, I'm in prison, but Paul says afflictions have a purpose in my life. It is advancing the gospel. But then he shows us what it looks like when we look at our affliction with an eternal perspective, we're able to see the power of God working in our afflictions. What do you mean? Listen to what Paul says. I want you to know what's happened to me is serve the God, advance to serve the gospel. But not only that, I want you to know that my affliction, because of my affliction, the entire imperial guard and everyone else knows that I'm here because I am in Christ. Let me ask you this. What if your affliction was working in you and on you, but your affliction was in your life so that others see how you handle your affliction in a way that honors God? Listen to what Paul says. And the gospel's advancing. He says, externally, the gospel's going, but he says, internally, in the prison system, all the guards know that I'm here because I am a believer, I'm a follower. All the guards and the imperial guard know I am here because of Christ. D.L. Moody says, we can stand affliction better than prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. Now let me just be honest with you, my season of anxiety and fear, gripping, there's two things I learned. Number one, I learned that the mind is the devil's playground. If you let him in, he'll have a field day. Why? Because he's a liar. John 6 says he's a liar. John 8 says he's a liar. He can't tell the truth. First Peter says he's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. John 10, 10 says he's a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is out to get you. And if he gets in your mind, he will place seeds of doubt and fear and all of those things in your mind. But a second thing I learned is that God's voice echoes loudest in the valley. That it's in the affliction, in the trial, in the suffering, that oftentimes you hear God the clearest. And I want you to understand, what, what is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, I'm here, and in my affliction, in my loneliness, in my, my imprisonment, not only is the gospel going forward, but man, the people internally, they know why I'm here. They know the purpose I'm here. In other words, his perspective was eternal. It wasn't a poor, pitiful me, I'm in a dungeon. His perspective was, no, God is moving. God is moving externally. God is moving internally. And I believe with all my heart that Paul knew that for every day he was in jail, or every day he was in prison, was a day of opportunity the gospel could spread a little further. When I was going through this season, I reached out to one of my best friends and we were talking about this passage, and I was just lamenting, man, I'm walking through it, man. Like, I can't seem to snap out of it, whatever that means. Like, bro, help me think through what to do. And he said, Nathan, I want you to think about it this way. He said, the way you're looking at your circumstance, the way you're looking at your dark season is from a temporary perspective. All you can see is the here and now. All you can see is the motion of the moment. He said, you got to be thinking with eternity in mind. Like, you're going to get through this because God said he'll never leave you or forsake you. You're going to get through it. 
And if you think with an eternal perspective, you realize all the things God's doing in you to get you through it. He said, think about it this way. He said, let me show this. Let me illustrate to you. He said, in that day, a prisoner like Paul would have been chained perhaps to the wall, but he also would have been chained to one of the guards. And he said he would be chained to a guard so that in case he somehow got free, the guard would still be chained to him and he just, he could not get away. He said, but that's a temporary perspective to say, well, Paul was, cha- was chained to the guard. He said, an eternal perspective is this. That guard had to get up every morning. He's making his coffee. Perhaps his wife comes in and says, well, what's your day look like? And he says, oh, honey, (laughs) I've got to go to the prison and I've got to be chained to this guy named Paul. And all day long, this guy named Paul is going to tell me that I'm a sinner and I need the grace of God in my life. All day long, this guy Paul is going to talk about the plan of salvation. All day long, this guy Paul is going to talk about me needing Jesus. So all day long, I am chained to this guy named Paul. Two different perspectives. (laughs) Paul is chained to the guard because he's in prison. That's right there. That's right in front of him. No, or that guard is chained to Paul so that he has to listen to the gospel all day long. Think about this with your perspective in the trial and the affliction you're going through. You're not chained to that affliction because that affliction will come and that affliction will go after you've suffered a little while. No, friend, an eternal perspective says, I'm not chained to that affliction. That affliction is chained to me so that it's a platform for the gospel in my life. Oh, it's chained to me, that, that, that struggle. It's chained to me, that physical issue. It's chained to me, that job situation. It's chained to me so that it can be a platform for the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul says. I want you to know that what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And I want you to know that my being in here has allowed the entire imperial guard to hear about Christ. But there's a third thing we see. The gospel is in partnership with my afflictions. Now notice this. If you go to Romans chapter 1 you realize that Paul always wanted to go to Rome as a preacher. But God, through afflictions, had Paul go to Rome as a prisoner and utilize his platform as a prisoner in a way that probably is greater than it would have been as a preacher. You see, the gospel is not opposed to affliction in your life. The gospel is actually in partnership. Well, how do we know that? Because listen to what he says, what happens. He says, the gospel is advancing. The imperial guard is hearing. The third thing he says to us, verse 14, and most of us brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. He said, not only is my imprisonment advancing the gospel, not only is everyone on the inside now hearing the gospel and they know that I'm here because of Christ. Listen to what he says. But now brothers outside are becoming more bold to share the gospel because they see what God is doing through my affliction. They see what God is doing through my imprisonment, and it is causing them to be bold to share the gospel because they know God will do the same thing in their life. John Wesley says, even in the greatest afflictions, we ought to testify to God that in receiving them from his hand, we feel pleasure in the midst of pain from being afflicted by him who loves us and whom we love. You see, Paul spells it out pretty clearly for us. He's in a season of major affliction, 
what does he do with it? Poor, poor, pitiful me. No, 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 no. I don't deserve this. No, 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 no. They've got the wrong guy. No, 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 no. Look what he does. He uses his affliction for the glory of God. You see, a lot of you and a lot of us, I should say, when we enter into a season of affliction, our mind subconsciously thinks, God, why are you punishing me? As if God is on some lazy boy golden throne in heaven saying, Nathan, I don't like what you've done. Zap. <laughs> no, that's not how God works. No, see, God says, Nathan, I want to entrust you with affliction because I've got something unique I want to do in your life and through your life, but it's going to hurt a little before it gets better. Paul says, the gospel is advanced. The imperial guard now know Christ. They know I'm in here because of Christ. And now brothers all across the way are becoming bold because they see how affliction is leading to the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. How are you using your affliction? You've been entrusted with it. It's a blessing. Let me close with this story. I know this to be true because it's been hammered out on the anvil of my heart and my life. I told you I have an oldest son. Between my first son and my second son, my wife had two miscarriages, and then we got pregnant again. We were so excited to go find out what the baby was. And so the day came, and, man, we were going to the ultrasound. Now, I know some of you in here saying, well, that's not fair. When I had babies, they didn't have ultrasounds. Well, you didn't ride to church on a donkey this morning either, so thank God for modern technology, right? <laughs> we go into the doctor's office. Man, we're so excited. My wife lays on the table. They start to ultrasound. and Man, our hearts are beating like crazy, and all of a sudden we see the countenance of the nurse's face change. She says, will you excuse me for a moment? I said, sure. She walked out. I looked at my precious wife, and she had a tear coming down her eye, and I said, sweetheart, I don't know what's going on, but it's going to be okay. A few moments later, the doctor walks in and he picks up where the nurse left off and he looks at us and he says those words so many of you have probably heard. He said, Nathan, Jenna, I don't know how to tell you this, but somehow over the last couple of days, your little baby boy's heart has stopped beating. And he said, uh, Jenna, tomorrow you're going to have to come in and deliver a stillborn little boy. We were devastated, man. We got in the car, we cried, we called our parents. We didn't know what to do. We were 24 or 25 at the time. The next morning, I wheeled my wife into the hospital at ETMC and Tyler, knowing that I would wheel her out without a baby in her arms. And she goes in and she bravely and courageously delivers this little boy that we named Connor. At the time, I was pastoring a church in Martins Mill, Texas. I bet not many of you know where Martins Mill, Texas is. Don't blink. Pass through it. <laughs> In fact, the day that they called me out there, I love that place now, man. I love those folks. But there was a stop sign, a blinking light, and had a gas station. I had to convince my wife it was a country store. And I went around a little S-curve in town. There was a kid walking a goat on a leash while his dog ran loose. And I thought, Lord, where are you calling me? <laughs> but it was an incredible two and a half years. You don't just move out to Martin's Mill. 
But there was a funeral home just down the road in Canton, and they called me and said, Pastor, you do a lot of funerals, man. We want to bless you in the midst of your loss, and so we want to do a service for your little boy that we named Connor. And there's a cemetery about 30 miles away, 30 minutes away in Maybank, Texas. Man, if you want to, we're happy to donate you a plot just so you can bury your little baby boy. I said, thank you. We'll take it. So we did a service for him and buried him. Well, that morning after she delivered him, my job was to walk out and tell the family. So you walk out of the room and there was some double doors there and the waiting room was to the right. And I stopped before I got to those doors and there was a hallway and I turned right and I walked down that hallway. In the middle of that hallway, I just dropped to my knees. I'm in the middle of ETMC and I'm angry at the Lord. And I just watched my wife just be devastated. And I said, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What did we do? And I'll never forget. I said, God, why are you doing this to us? And right there before I even raised up off my knees, I don't tell people God spoke to me very often, but God spoke to my heart that day. And here's what he said, Nathan, I'm not doing this to you. I'm doing this through you for someone else down the road. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I'm thinking, God, you're the creator of vocabulary and that's the best you got <laughs> That's not what I want to hear. I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm hurt. Why would you do this to us? I'm not doing it to you. I'm doing it through you. A couple months later, I'm at home on a Sunday afternoon, and we live next door to church. I get a knock on the door as my youth ministry said, man, we've got a young couple that wants to talk to you. And I'm like, are you serious? I mean, it's Sunday afternoon, and guys, you know, Sunday afternoon are only good for two things, football and naps, amen? He said, no, you need to go over there. So I go over there, and I walk in. There's this young couple. They're sitting in my office, and I sit down and say, what can I help you with? And they said, we just moved here. You don't just move there, folks. <laughs> they said, we were driving by. And they said, we just felt prompted that we need to stop and talk to the guy that leads this place. I said, okay, well, what's going on? What can, what can I help you with? And the young lady begins to cry. And she says, two weeks ago, we had a stillborn little girl. I said, time out. That words that the Lord had prompted in my heart just two months before began to come to mind. I ran over and got my wife said, you got to come here and we sat there in my office. We listened to them cry. We listened to them tell their story. And right there, man, we were able to share the gospel with them in the midst of their crisis. And that day, that young couple gave their life to Christ. That's a cool story if it ends there. <laughs> we start talking. And we start realizing, oh, man, goodness. Their little baby girl and our little baby boy are buried in the same cemetery some 30 minutes away. Like, how in the world, God, are you doing that? You don't just move to Martin's Mill. You don't just drive by and feel prompted to stop some, talk to somebody you've never met. God, how are you doing this? That's a cool story if it ends there. As we start talking, we begin to realize, to the best of our understanding, Go in, you take a left, you do this, you do that, you go down this far, and we begin to realize the best of our understanding that our little baby boy and their little baby girl 
not only buried in the same cemetery some 30 minutes away, but buried in plots next to each other some 30 minutes away. It's like, God, what are you doing? Like, that man can't do that, friends. <laughs> That's only God orchestrating those things in our lives through a pain, through affliction. That God would take the death of our son and bring eternal life to a couple through the death of their daughter. God is piecing these things together. And that's a really, really cool story if it ends there. 2017, over a decade later, God calls my family to move to Denver, Colorado. We moved to Denver to work with the convention there, and we're living in a little city just north of Denver called Westminster, kind of Westminster Broomfield. And there's a church in Naples, Florida that called. They were without a pastor. They were going through a hard time. They called me and said, hey, would you fly from Denver down here and speak here in Naples? Bring a message of hope, just that God will work in the midst of difficult times. And so uh, I get on a plane from Denver, I fly to Miami, I drive into Naples, I preach a message, I share the story about God doing what he's done in the loss of our son, and I get on a plane and I fly back to Denver. When I get back home, my wife says, hey babe, there is a man that has reached out to me on Facebook that says he has to talk to you. So I call the guy, I say, what can I do for you? He said, hey, you don't know me, we've never met. He said, but one of the guys that I'm a coworker with that works with me lives in Naples, Florida. He was at church when you spoke and you told the story of losing your son and how God had redeemed that. And he was in the choir and he said, and he called me and said to my wife and I, you've got to listen to this. He said, what I haven't told you is this week, my wife and I had a stillborn child. And he said, we sat in our bed and we, we have felt so hopeless. We have felt so betrayed. And, and, and he said, we, we sat in our bed and we heard how God had redeemed your affliction, the loss of your son, your stillborn son. And, and, and man, my wife and I, we just cried and we just begged God right then and there, God, you've given us hope now that you're going to use this in an unbelievable way. And he said, man, I don't know. Someday I just, I'd love for us, us to meet. I said, great. Where do you live? He said, I live in Thornton, Colorado. <laughs> Thornton, North Glen is a, two cities together. Get this, you ready for this? About seven minutes from where I lived in Denver. I said, man, we can get together for lunch. Yes, yeah, so we met for pizza. He said, tell me about your family. I said, well, I got four kids. They go to school in West Michigan. No, my wife's a teacher at a small Christian school in Arvada, Colorado, about 20 miles away. And my kids all go to Faith Christian Academy. He goes, you are kidding me. No, not kidding you. He said, my kids go to Faith Christian Academy. Whoa. He said, what grade are your kids in? I started telling him and I got to my oldest son. I said, and he's in eighth grade. And the guy go, oh. He said, did you just speak at the eighth grade graduation a couple of weeks ago? I said, I did. He goes, I was there. I said, why were you there? He goes, because my daughter is in eighth grade. He goes, man, our kids are in the same grade at the same small Christian school in Arvada, Colorado. Don't miss this, friends. Don't miss this. Seven billion people on earth. Seven billion. God takes a guy puts him in a church in a place that nobody's heard of. A young couple moves there. 
out of the basis of our affliction, we're able to minister to them, lead them to Christ. God takes me then to Denver to send me to Florida to patch me back to Denver to meet a guy whose wife and he had just gone through the same thing and needed the hope of what God could do in their affliction and their pain and their hurt. And with 7 billion people, his daughter and my son are in the same very small private Christian school in Denver in Arvada, Colorado. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding you. Why? Because that is the God we serve. He is a God where nothing is impossible. He is a God that is always connecting the dots in our lives for his glory. He is the God that in the midst of the deepest affliction we could possibly feel, he's already in our tomorrow waiting on us to get there. And he has already taken the pain of today and he's utilizing it for the promise of tomorrow. And friend, let me tell you something. Whatever you got going on, man, I'm just telling you, God has not forsaken you. He is with you. With you and he's in your tomorrow waiting on you to get there. Now, that is a cool story if it ends there. And I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't know what the next chapter is, but I believe it hadn't ended there. <laughs> because God takes our pain, our afflictions, and our struggles. And God says, watch what I can do. Watch what I can do. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, your greatest affliction is that you are separated from God. The Bible says if you don't know Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Just a few moments, I'm going to pray. A pastor is going to come up and tell you how you can respond. Man, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, listen to me. The only answer to the affliction of lostness is Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Man, I want to encourage you to walk up to those people who will be praying down here with you. And simply say, I want to give my life to Jesus. The second group I'm talking to is there are many of you all over this room who are dealing with deep, deep wounds, deep afflictions, tragedies, trials, anxieties, fear, depression. I mean, worry. I mean, all these things. Hey, listen to me. I'm just going to tell you, like, I hope you'll hear my heart in this. You can't fix it. You just can't. But God can use it. And I just want to encourage you today, man, if you're going through that, don't leave this place without having somebody pray with you. Just to grab somebody and say, look, I am walking through it. But I need God to walk closely with me through it. And trust that whatever God's doing in you, whatever he's allowed or causing in you, he is using to work through you. For somebody else down the road that you don't even know and you can't comprehend. Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, that God, you would move in a way that brings you honor and glory. Father, I pray that those in this place who do not know you, that today they would not leave this place without surrendering their life to you. Father, I pray that those in this room who are dealing with tragedy, dealing with trials, dealing with adversity, dealing with all the things that weigh us down, that today would be hope for these people, that they would realize they can't fix it, but you can use it, and that, God, you are already in there tomorrow waiting on them to get there. So, God, today I pray that all over this room, people who are dealing with afflictions would realize it's really a blessing because we can understand that you're on this ride of life with us, and for the first time in a long time, we can surrender it to you and hold our hands up in worship because we know that you got this. Bless these people 
in the midst of challenges for your glory and your name. In Jesus' name, amen.